Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the FT Business Books podcast, the place to find the best in business writing. I'm Isabel Berwick, FT Assistant Features Editor, and with me is Andrew Hill, our Management Editor. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. In this series, we're talking to the six authors who've made the shortlist of the 2017 FT and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award. It's the world's most coveted prize for business writing. You can find the shortlist at ft.com forward slash book award and we'll find out who wins on November the 6th. You can contact us on Twitter at FTWorkCareers, and please use the hashtag FTBizBooks. And so to the second episode of the series, and we're talking to Professor Walter Scheidel of Stanford University. He's the author of The Great Leveller, and he's joining us on the line today from New York. Welcome, Walter. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And what an interesting book it's got, and it's also got an extraordinary subtitle, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. That is some sweep. How did you come up with the idea for this book? (laughs) It is a bit of a long title, but it does, I think, accurately describe what I'm trying to do in the book. My inspiration was really Thomas Piketty's book on capital in the 21st century, who looked at developments in the 20th century, the 19th century a little bit, about how inequality has evolved over time. But I'm an ancient historian. I'm paid to study pre-modern history. And this gave me the idea of going way uh, back in history, trying to see if his model held true for other periods as well. What I found was that it really did. If you look at the full sweep of history, you find a very clear pattern in terms of the dynamics that drive the evolution of inequality in income and wealth. Uh, And uh, in fact, in the FT, one of our columnists, Janan Ganesh, said, Mr. Scheidel's evidence is so persuasive that readers will find themselves cheering on the Black Death as a boost to median wages. So can you tell us a little bit about exactly what it was that you're talking about in the grand sweep? Well, what I found is that every single time we find a major compression in inequality, that the rich are less rich or the poor less poor, that is always linked to a massive and often very violent shock. And those shocks come in four flavors. Two of them occur mostly in the more distant past, the collapse of states and very severe epidemics. And the other two are really phenomena of the 20th century, mass mobilization warfare and transformative revolution. So the plague that was just referenced, that had a very uh, straightforward effect on agrarian societies. If you kill off a third or half of all people in a given population without destroying physical capital, the supply of labor goes down. Everything else remains the same. That drives up wages. It lowers rents. It lowers the income 
income that landowners or capitalists can derive from their assets. And so all the poor are less poor, at least for a while, until the population recovers and the rich are less rich. That's one of the, the four factors that I was able to identify. So, I mean, I think we all came away a bit uh, feeling a bit depressed about <laughs> human nature from this book, because you've got all these endless examples from Rome to Egypt to China, medieval England, of lots of devious ways in which people can manage to grab land and consolidate their wealth and generate inequality and keep it sustained. Uh, are there any societies which manage to stop the type of endemic corruption that I suppose happens in the periods between these great levelers? Uh, for most of human history, the answer would have to be no. That's really a very recent phenomenon of you get, getting to Denmark, so to speak, right? The, yes. the yeah. goal is to live in a society where corruption is really contained quite successfully. That's really something that only appears in the last few generations. And as we know, in a, in a pretty small part of the world we live in today. You talk about the history of the early 20th centuries, the Great Compression, because inequality was stifled, in fact, went into reverse in some respects. Do you think that was a one-off from, from your studies or could it happen again? What were the particular factors that caused such a great upheaval in the early 20th century? I guess we can only hope it was a one-off because it was driven by World War One and World War Two in combination with the great communist revolutions in Russia and China. And none of those were particularly uh, pleasant events. But what they did was they really reduced inequality, mostly by making the rich uh, less rich relative to everybody else. Uh, the wars required governments to impose extremely high tax rates. Uh, they had a very detrimental effect on the return on capital because of all the dislocations it brought uh, because of state intervention in the private sector. Uh, there was massive physical destruction in many countries, inflation because a lot of money had to be printed to pay for the war effort. There was full employment because of conscription and the war industry. So all those factors together in the countries that participated in the war and even many of the bystanders really greatly reduced inequality. And then there were many second order effects, uh, an increase in, in democracy, extension of the franchise, explosive growth in labor unions, and really changes also in, in attitudes in society, at least for a certain amount of time. And of course, once you look at the yeah, communist revolutions, that's self-explanatory, right? Once you have Bolsheviks or Maoists going out, expropriating, killing all the rich, nationalizing assets, imposing a planned economy, inequality is bound to go down a great deal. I think one of my favourite stats from the many great stats in your book is the fact that before the First World War, the, the richest 10% in England had 92% mm. of the assets, which is extraordinary, actually. That is really quite extraordinary because there's nothing left for anybody else. Yeah, right, the, the Downton Abbey people. Uh, now it's down to about half, I believe. So mm. I think one thing that struck me this summer that was that the great leveller was on a lot of the must-read lists in the papers and highbrow think pieces. And a lot of the elites, the political elites, the one percenters were citing this as their favourite beach read of the summer. Why do you think it's been so popular? I think the whole issue has been in the air. And especially for the last 10 years or so since the financial crisis. And of course, uh, lots of publications have come out, but none of them has really tried to look at the very long term and see if there is some kind of logic to these developments, where there are patterns underneath what happens from year to year in history. And I think that's part of the appeal. And do you think also that to a certain extent, some of your book argues that whatever governments do, 
it's not going to have a massive impact. Does it make some people feel better about lack of progress? I have had very different responses from the left and the right. So I've had responses from the right saying, Scheidel is right, it means government intervention doesn't make any sense. We'll just, you know, step back and let the economy do its work. And I've had responses from the left saying I'm some kind of strange right winger because I'm advocating abolishing state intervention, that sort of thing. So I I don't think so. I'm, I'm certainly not preaching defeatism. One of the goals of the book was to show that it's really very difficult to meaningfully, significantly reduce inequality, especially in times of peace and stability. It doesn't mean it's necessarily impossible, but it's not nearly as simple as people often make it out to be by saying, well, why don't we do what we did a generation or two generations ago, it worked back then. And my goal was to put this really in context by saying, well, it only worked back then because conditions were very, very different because of the war, the Cold War communism. All these things really shaped developments back then, and they can't easily be replicated today. It's not an obvious uh, business book, and we have this every year when we, mm. with the range of books that we select for the Business Book of the Year Award, which is, which is very wide. But were you surprised to see it listed for the award? I was pleasantly surprised. I thought I'd written a book of economic history um, above all, but I, I can see its relevance, of course, of the business sphere, and I've been very pleased with this, needless to say. It's, it's perhaps hard to boil down hundreds of pages into a couple of maxims for corporate mm-hmm. executives, but are there a couple of things that you think somebody operating a business rather than a potentate or a, uh, an oligarch might take from the book? Well, think hard about the problem. That's always a good idea. Familiarize yourself with what causes, well, wage inequality, especially if you run a business. Spend a few minutes thinking about what consequences this might have for society as l- at large if the gap between rich and poor keep growing. What does it mean for your business opportunities, for the purchasing power of the less advantaged? What does it mean for social peace? What is it going to mean for electoral uh, politics? Is it going to give rise to populism? How is that going to affect your business? All these things are really interconnected. And here history is a reasonably good guide to what might happen. I came away thinking this is quite an optimistic book in some ways. And some of the catastrophes we read about, the plagues, the collapsed states, for example, they may not happen again. But events in the world have moved on, I presume, since I don't know when you finished writing this book, but certainly things move fast. Have you changed your view that we're in a fairly stable time now? Uh, Not really. If there's going to be another war, it's not going to be like World War II. Of course, a way of development in North Korea, but I think that's unlikely to lead to any kind of global uh, conflagration. There are no credible revolutionary movements. States are much more resilient than they used to be. There may be a new plague tomorrow. That's certainly true. But because of genetics, we are much better equipped uh, to deal with it. People keep asking me about climate change, whether climate change could become the fifth leveling force uh, in a way that hasn't been present in quite the same way in the past. And that's a possibility in the long term. But if that happens, it would work through some of these traditional mechanisms by triggering war or revolution or epidemic. So that may well happen, but that's not going to be the case um, anytime soon. And slightly more frivolously, do you have a particular favourite moment in time? I think, are the Romans your particular area of interest? I I was rather taken by the Aztec 1% myself, who lived (laughs) in two-storey houses, ate the flesh of human sacrifices, drank chocolate, kept concubines and did not pay taxes. Are they the most outrageous 1%ers in history or are there some other ones? 
they are almost like the quintessential one percenters in a way. At least if you take a more leftist perspective of how especially that chocolate eating, that really that really swung it for me. <laughs> well, it's either the human flesh or the chocolate. Right? Yeah. It's a good combination. <laughs> Antiquity generally provides pretty juicy examples. So yeah, I have many favorites in that in that area. I'm kind of intrigued about your research process. I mean, clearly you're a professional mm. historian, so this is what you do. But as you point out in some bits of the book. In a lot of cases, you go back so far, many thousands of years, you, you can only really use proxy data for what happened with levelling. I mean, the one that intrigued me was the, the sort of poor quality coffins of the uh, elite in Lower Egypt, where they hadn't even managed to mummify themselves properly because they had clearly fallen on hard harder times. And I'm just wondering how you even get to the point of thinking of using these proxies. Is there a lot of travel or is it really just travel deep into the archives? Well, it's because I'm used to it. Like I said, I'm paid to be an ancient or a pre-modern historian. And so I'm really used with dealing uh, with evidence that people who work in the 20th century would consider to be totally inadequate or unusable. You really have to be creative to conduct this kind of long-term survey that I'm trying. And not just about inequality, about any topic uh, that would come to mind. So I think in a way it was easier for me as someone who specializes in earlier phases of history uh, to tackle this particular project because um, I had a sense of where to go, um, how to analyze, how to interpret these very diverse uh, uh, data sets and tr try and see what I could piece them together into a more coherent story. And it's true, the farther you go back in time, uh, the more generous you have to be uh, in dealing with your data, the more creative in finding data sets uh, that give you some meaningful information. But I hope that I was successful in, in, in piecing them together in a reasonably persuasive way. How do you know when to stop? I mean, you, in that particular passage, you, you talk about how actually right. at a certain point there really isn't anything else to explore. And we, we presume, I guess, that most has been excavated that might provide some further clues. But it must be a little frustrating to reach a dead end. No, that's true. There are large parts of history where we simply can't tell. We simply have no idea uh, how inequality, let's say, uh, evolved over hundreds or even thousands of years in some part of the globe. So that's why my account focuses quite a bit on, on Europe, uh, on China, where, of course, the evidence is pretty good, uh, parts of the ancient Near East, some pre-Columbian culture. But there are many, many dark areas that are unlikely to be illuminated anytime soon or ever. But it's really the best we can do. So it's not a comprehensive world history, it really sets out uh, also the limits of the possible, trying to show how far we can push this analysis before we run out of any kind of data to use. And just if we could start afresh, Sims like, what would be the single best thing we could put in place to stop rampant inequality, do you think? If we start afresh yeah. from all the level. Let's pretend, <laughs> <-gatherers> or let's <laughs> pretend the, uh, we've been leveled by some terrible right. apocalypse. How do we start again? We would probably start in a similar way because in order to have, and there are two sides of the story, in order to have economic growth, dynamic development, we have to accept a certain degree of inequality. I believe that's really unavoidable because it provides incentives for people to go out and engage in business, right? So that's really a, a very organic connection between inequality and economic growth. The issue is not whether we should have inequality or not because that's unavoidable. The question is how to manage it. 
And there, of course, there are many countries out there, even today, that are more successful than others, if you think of uh, Scandinavian countries. But that, again, is, is very deeply rooted in how these societies are configured, how they are set up culturally, and so on. So it's actually very difficult to come up with recipes that are universally applicable. Do you have, from the other five very diverse books on the business book of the year, shortlist a, a favourite from your five fellow finalists? I know I have to say that I'm very much looking forward to reading Andrew Lowe's book because it was also published by Princeton, but so far I've only, I will do so, but so far I've only had a chance to look at, uh, to read two of them, and I'm currently finishing Ellen Powers' book, which I found really intriguing because I also live in Silicon Valley. I'm, of course, not part of the venture capitalism world, but I was really intrigued by her account of how much sexism there still seems to be in that industry, and I'm really looking forward to finishing this one and to meeting her and all the other authors, of course. Another type of another type of inequality. Mm, very much so. And if you were asked to choose a favourite business book using the wide selection or range that we look at for the award, do you have one favourite book of all time? It could be from economic history if you wanted, or any other area. Well, I really have to say, and I mentioned this already earlier, um, Piketty's book won the award, I believe, two years ago, if That's I'm right, not mistaken. Yeah. And that was certainly a great inspiration for me and for many other people. So that would have to be my favorite, even if it's not, again, a, a real business book in that sense. But I'm glad that this term is now more broadly applied. Walter, thank you very much indeed. It's been wonderful to talk to you. We've been talking today about The Great Leveller by Walter Shadow, one of the six shortlisted books on the FT Business Books of the Year list. Join us in a week's time when we'll be talking to another of our shortlisted authors and please check out the full list at ft.com forward slash book awards. My thanks to Walter Scheidel and to Andrew Hill and to my producer, Yanina Conboy. And please don't forget to talk to us on Twitter. Please use the hashtag FTBizBooks. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, goodbye.